coal spills out, the dam is broken, and we would desire that all would be worshiping and praising. So here in this short song, sung by the nation of Israel, is a call to all the nations, to all the peoples, that they too should praise God. Psalm 100, which bears much resemblance in content to Psalm 117, contains a similar exhortation. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Note here, to all the lands. Not to the land of Israel, but to all of the lands. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. So in Psalm 117, a few words in short form, the song of praise that Israel sang is what? The gospel. The good news being looked forward to, delivered to the Gentiles. Here in these words, a recollection of the promise given to Abraham. Get out of your country family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham is blessed to be a blessing and a, fam- and a blessing to all of the families of the earth. All of those who will be his spiritual seed will be called by the name of Christ, which will be from every language and every tribe. See them come in, small numbers, as a prefiguring of things to come in the time even before Christ. Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, Ruth, the Moabites, descendant of sexual unfaithfulness, yet herself faithful to her mother-in-law beyond the borders. And these two, the family tree of our Savior. This promise had been made to Abraham, so too had later prophecies been made that would attest to the nation's coming to the one true God. Isaiah says this, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who stands as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 11:9-10. Later, as God the Father says to the servant Israel, that which would be fulfilled in Christ, this too from Isaiah. Indeed, He, the Lord, says, "It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as light to the Gentiles, and you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth." Isaiah. The prophet Amos prophesies thus, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. To repair its damages, I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, and does this thing. Amos 9, 9, verses 11 and 12. All of these prophecies and more and Psalm 117, Paul looks back on in Romans 15, saying that Christ became a servant to the Jews to confirm, confirm these promises that were made. 
Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So, in the fullness of time comes the Christ, this man Jesus, fully God and fully man, to fulfill the terms of the old covenant, grant us a new one in his blood. When Christ is but a child, Simeon spoke thus about him. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. 2.29-32 This Jesus, later in his life, makes no secret that he has sheep from other folds, and that they will hear his voice, and that the two will be one flock with one shepherd. Even before the apostles take the word to the Gentile, even before Peter's vision of the sheet, Paul's ministry among the Gentiles, there are those God-fearers, referred to in Psalm 118, who are served by Christ, centurions and others, humbled souls who would even be pleased to be called dogs by Christ. If only they could have scraps that fall from the master's table. So, out upon the Roman roads and shipping lanes goes forth the gospel, Christ, the Roman Empire, those legs of iron and feet of iron and clay in the vision that Daniel explains, struck by the stone that is cut without hands, and the stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Rome may have been building the infrastructure of the empire for its own purposes, for establishing the Roman peace, but God was, the human proposing, building the roads upon which his message message of the peace of Jerusalem, of a peace beyond understanding, of a peace between God and those formerly rebellion against him, traitors to the faith, while we began sinners. And so Paul says when addressing the Athenians, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who all men, everywhere, are to repent. The fruition of this repentance, this turning to God, we read of in the revelation given to John. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. They shall bring their glory and honor of the nations into it. And so here we are, gathered on the morning of the Lord's Day for worship. Gentile Christians, I trust probably everyone here is in that category, to whom the Israelites from millennia ago sang these songs. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him all you peoples. We are the sheep from other folds, the dogs gathering crumbs that fall from the master's table, but the flock crumbs. What understatements we find in Scripture? Is it crumbs that we eat at the wedding supper of the Lamb and eat from the floor? Take joy, great joy in these words, therefore, sung in an ancient tongue. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you. Psalm 117 goes further, though, not only in telling us, the Gentiles, to praise, but 
but telling us why we should praise, telling us what things are worthy of praise. I am not to praise God mindlessly. There are reasons praise. Though there be emotion in this, it is not mere emotion. It's not mere emotional thought. It's not an excitement built up by whatever devices nor does God leave us, as some of our worst songs of praise do, with motion untied to any object to be decided upon by whoever sings it. No. God gives us what we are to praise Him. In short form, the content of our praise that should be rendered to Him is given to us in this song. Let us hear the words again. For His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And from Psalm 100, we hear similar words. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Two items of praise are mentioned in each of these psalms. The first being God's merciful kindness. In one way, there are none who have not tasted the Lord's merciful kindness. We all have had his air in our nostrils, his drink upon our lips, his food in our mouths. What does Psalm 100 confess earlier? It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Here we are reminded that we are creatures, that we are created, that we have been made contingent, alive. Be reminded of this fast. When you pray this fast, it's the hunger gnaws in your stomach. Give thanks to God because we cannot do wrong without it. Do without drink and feel the thirst of the weakness. See how little can be removed from us and we perish. Or sit at the bottom of the pool and hold your breath for as long as you can. You can last a minute minutes. We can hardly last very long without the oxygen that's all around us. Abundantly for us to breathe. All of these things are God's abundant mercies to us. But his mercy extends yet further because the satisfaction of all those needs is a source of delight for us. Our food. Let's think about that. It doesn't taste like cardboard. Some of it may, um, especially those in college, they think that all food is tasting like food. <laughs> but if somebody's done the job right, it doesn't taste like food. The delights at the table are a joy to the palate, the tongue, the nose, what variety is. He satisfies us with good things, God does, not just one good thing, not a baker's dozen good things, but an uncountable number of there are grains, there is wheat, there are vegetables, fruits. You can spice those with any of a number of spices. They can be hot, they can be cold, they can be fried, they can be baked. They can be prepared hundreds of different ways. If anyone wants to think about the glory of the nations, some sort of image to put in one's mind, then at the very least, think about all of the different kinds of foods, all the different ways in which those different 
exercise a great love on each side of the lines, move on to drink and to the air that we breathe, to the clothes that clothe us and keep us from the elements. We haven't even touched on all of the joys of people love, mothers and fathers, wives and husbands, friends, children, and how richly we have been provided for those joys. But even those mercies, abundant, plentiful, numerous, new every morning, touching all of the aspects of our lives, pale in comparison to the mercy that saves us in Christ Jesus. Without the mercy shown in salvation, all of the other mercies would only add to our condemnation. We would have tasted the goodness of the Lord and thanked him not. How many people do we know, mistaken in the mouths, who proclaim that they believe in no God? And surely no God rules the universe that's so How many of us have said much the same thing? How many of us have been like Naomi, saying that we have been dealt a bitter hand, not seeing the devoted love standing next to us, the love of the Lord, giving up her own people to die for a people, unaware of the insult of this husband? We don't know half of the mercies that have been extended to us. The Athenians had an altar to the unknown God. Perhaps we should get some wisdom. Perhaps we should pray prayers of thanksgiving for all of the mercies that we don't know about, either because of inattention, lack of vision or imagination, or evil senses. We simply don't. Still, all of those pale in comparison to that which we do know, at least through the glass, darkly. We have been saved, those of us called by the name of Christ, from an eternity of torment to an eternity of beatitude. Being before the face, the very face of the Lord, that we who were at war with God have been brought into a right relation that our sins have been covered, that our guilt has been atoned for, a thousand different ways to witness. And yet, who can offer praises adequately? In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. What language shall I borrow to thank the dearest friend? Our hymnody testifies to the poverty of our resources that beset us when we go to the task of praising God for the salvation for which he has visited us. Words fail, too few, too small, too weak, inadequate. But words are demanded. Silence will be long. The inadequate will have to speak. Psalm 117 and Psalm 100 also give us a second reason to praise God. Let us hear the words again. For his merciful kindness is great to us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 100, his truth endures to all generations. We acknowledge that Christ Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Do we praise God for his truth, for his truthfulness, that this truth is everlasting? This should be a precious gem to us, too, because there's very little of it lying about these days. The lie and the deception of the order of the day, because of the following of Satan, is the liar, is the father of all such. Note first of all that mercy and truth, God's economy, do not stand opposed to one another, but rather are wed together. The mercy that God shows us is according to. This is not the way we oftentimes think. 
many times for us it's like this. Well, I could be truthful, or I could be merciful. This is the way we think. This is the choice as we see it. Thinking that an overconcern with truth generally leads one to be unmerciful and unloving. Not so with God, and not really so with us either. His mercy to us is granted in the very light of truth. God deals with us in the truth of the situation. Hence, his salvation to us in the light of our rebellion against him and our being dead in sins and trespasses. Hence, his discipline of us in the light of our continuing sins. He would not have us labor under a delusion. He would not have us be at odds with the truth. Because that actually is not merciful to us, not the moment. Let's do a thought experiment. You have a friend. He's on top of the Empire State Building. He has feathers attached to his arm about ready to jump. What do you say or do to show mercy and love to him in this situation? Probably all of us would tell him that he was acting foolish, and if we're strong enough, we'll let him flesh. And why? Because we know the truth of gravity, the truth that his arms will be insufficient for the task that he's put them to. Because of this truth, we know it is better to damage his self-esteem a bit. Maybe you can pull it maybe even full of muscle to, to save him. But with regard to the truths of Scripture, we are oftentimes more silent. It must be clear. Hell is just as true, or even more so, than gravity. Failing to warn of hell betrays a lack of mercy, surely is letting our friend jump the pledge, or a lack of belief in the truth that God has revealed to us. We are all guilty of this. I am preaching to myself. God in this regard, let us mark the behavior of our Lord Christ Jesus. Christ would not allow us to remain deceived, even for that deception to be, in our perspective at least, beneficial. Let's think about this. If ever a lie were more comforting, completely beyond the finding out of them, it would be the lie that there is life beyond the grave. That actually is the lie. What a comfort that would and how could the truth ever come to light? Nobody's going to come back and say there's a light beyond the way. Yet note that Christ tells his disciples this Let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. No matter how comforting a lie it Christ would not only not tell it, he would not let his disciples labor under the delusion. As it is, it wasn't lying. He tells them, if it had been, he would have told them. This is a truthfulness beyond that which we have seen in them, and beyond that which we practice. Thus, in God's character, we find this attribute. Trust him fully, for a lie is not found in him. How can we adequately praise God for this? That we will not find him lying to us or allowing us to stay. Hell is a murky place with nothing clear or obvious or straightforward. What truths are told are told with deception of mind, and so told in the wrong context with misleading meaning. Truths told in such a way as to serve the And all of that can swirling mist of half-truths, outright lies, hatred of truth.
sound familiar. In heaven, however, there is none such. All is clear and bright in the light of God's revelation. There is no lie here. This we can trust, and we will not find God to fail in us. Note, too, that it is not merely the truth of God that is praised, but that it is an everlasting truth. How can it be otherwise, we think? That God's truth will not change or alter would seem natural enough to us, but don't let us skip over this word, because we are all too familiar with many so-called truths that change moment by moment. One of the areas in which this is most obvious, seems to me at least, is with regard to health, with regard to diet and health. Daily we have newspaper articles written with the certainty of truth that such and such is good for you, such and such is bad for you. A week later or more, things change. Cholesterol is bad for you. Well, no, actually, there's some good cholesterol and there's some bad cholesterol. And at all times, too many of us believe each alter the poor is gospel. But it's not, and that's really not a huge complaint. Scientific truth is, in general, provisional. In the light of what we know now, this is what we believe to be the case. Tomorrow, no more than we did the day before, so the theory changes. That isn't a complaint, that's just a recognition of what the scientific enterprise is about. At one time, it was acceptable to believe that the Earth was in the same. Precise model for it, and it made sense of all the observations. Planted crops by it, and it worked. At a certain point, more difficult observations were made, and really had to be changed, however painful that was. That's how it goes in science. But that is not how it goes when we go to the truth of We will not learn more at some point to revise our theories about hell about heaven. He who knows all things has revealed these things to us. They are not the provisional truths of science. They are eternal truths revealed by God who knows all things. More data will not appear that will lead us to revise our theories. They aren't theories. They are the truth of God, eternal and everlasting. Thus, when I go to the scriptures, I go to something very different than the morning newspaper. Opinion, cant, bearing, and fickle allegiances is what I find in the newspaper. Unchanging truth Thus, the inherent silliness of those who say, for example, that old rules, ethics, and time has gone by aren't adequate for our current problems. We need new truths, new rights, and new wrongs, they say. The rules are gods. They don't need revising, much less trashing. They will be adequate for the situation. We may not like what they tell us because they may say we can't do something we like to. Well, we may, may not want to humbly ask for the wisdom to know how to apply them in the situation. But all that says more about us than it says about God's truth. Psalm 100, this most praiseworthy aspect of God's truth, is put another way, another way that it endures to all generations. So here is a particular application of this truth, God's truth being everlasting, that we can teach it to our children. They teach it to our children's children. Hence the Israelites of old were told to observe the Passover as an everlasting ordinance, and in due time explain it to their sons. The truth that God was the one that took them out of Egypt would not change. What God had done in history, what it meant, 
what about his divine character revealed would not change or could it. And we who have been taken from the Egypt of our sins, from captivity far more were we to know it, can pass along those same truths to our next generation just as confidently. This is the truth of God, mutable as it is. What relief and comfort to find in this, and how often we should run to it. Let us therefore praise God, we Gentiles, praise Him for His mercy and His truth everlasting. And I misspoke a while back. I said our words would be inadequate. That's not true. It might be true for the words that I would invent, but it is not true for the words inspired by the Holy Spirit that has come through many, such as Paul, that will surely suffice. Hear them from Ephesians. God's eternal and unchanging truth is mercy to us and let praise us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he has made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who trusted in Christ should be raised, should be to the praise of his glory. Amen.